this sermon will actually be quite apropos to, to Emily's work. Um, in fact, I've struggled somewhat with this sermon only from the, the, uh, the, the standpoint that it could be very long. It won't be very long, but it could be not because of its complexity of the text, but just because of its magnitude and impact. I think you'll see what I mean as I get started, but um, we'll be uh, exploring Revelation chapter 7 this morning, which is why we read the whole chapter. Um, the original text was, uh, was uh, kind of leaping over the, uh, the naming of the 12 tribes, but that's my favorite part. So um, I had it put back in there, and Jimmy read it so well. Um, really both sections read so well. Thank you, both of you. Um, one of the great things about the Bible, of course, is that it exposes us to such fundamental questions. Um, the Bible's just full of questions, and I take note of that, um, having worked among Jewish people, because in rabbinic tradition, you ask a lot of questions, and uh, it made me sensitive to the amount of questions that there are in the Bible. In fact, the fact that it starts out with a big question, the first time that we hear God speak in a language, um, uh, it is a question. He asks Adam, where are you? This kind of aching, poignant, fraught question. Um, I wonder what it sounded like when God asked that question, but there are many more. One of the primary questions of the Old Testament begging for an answer is who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? The mountain becomes a metaphor for what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And the quest now is how is that chasm between God and human beings bridged? And the, the Bible way of asking that question is who can ascend into the Mount of the Lord? It's poetic language and we are used to hearing it, but it's actually quite a painful question. Here's another question. What is man that thou art mindful of him? If I could channel my... King James Version, which I just love that way of phrasing it. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Who am I that you are mindful of me? Or how about this one? Why have you forsaken me? These aren't just ordinary questions. These are existential questions. And when you read the Bible, hopefully you find your own questions resonating with them. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Do I have control? Am I alone? In our culture, I think we're quite tempted to ignore these questions, but apparently God doesn't want us to ignore these questions. But in fact, he wants to answer them. And the way that he helps us to answer them is to root these questions in a context, in the right context. This is really important. Asking the question is one thing. Asking the question within a framework, within a context, is a different thing. So if I just abstractly ask the question, who am I? All right, that's different than asking my mom, who am I? All right, you're going to get very different answers depending on where you are when you ask the question and to whom you are asking the question or if you're asking the question to anyone in particular. Right? And what the Bible is saying, you know, why don't you ask your mom better than asking Karl Marx or 
well, I just will stop there because I'll get political really quickly here. So. Um, so the Bible is the framework, the place where those questions are best asked and answered. And the act of reading Revelation is really challenging, not only because we find the poetic language and the metaphor is somewhat challenging to understand, but I think especially because Revelation causes us to have to open our hearts to the reality that the world may just be the way that John describes it. The world as it is may just be the way that God reveals it to us as a place of preparation for those who will rule and reign with him in a new world. And what God is saying is, yeah, that's the way the world really is. And so the outcome of this kind of reading is going to move us ideally towards trust. Trust is kind of an existential word because it's something more than just intellectual belief. It's actually commitment. It's actually total commitment. Trust, not in an idea, but in a living God. Trust in a God who sacrifices for us, who forgives us, who saves us. Trust in a God who brings us fully into his family as heirs of his promise, as one who advocates and intercedes for us, who makes our lives fruitful, who equips us for meaningful labor. Those are all attributes I didn't just come up with. Those are attributes that the Bible discloses to us within the context of God's acts in history. A particular God a particular narrative, a particular way of engaging. Recall how the book of Revelation opens, or maybe we don't, we've, we don't know how the book of Revelation opens, but it's very beautiful how forthrightly John intends to set our hearts at rest. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. This is a beautiful expression of setting the right tone for the reading of this challenging text. Some would say that reading Revelation is challenging because its imagery is hard to interpret, but maybe it's challenging more so because we're opening up to the character of God, opening up to the sources of our own motivation, to our own fears and dreams, to our own questions and answers, to hope. As I say, it may be easier in our culture to say, I have no need of that. What I really have need of is success in my work, a healthy body, body affirmation from the right people, enough money, time for recreation. If I have those things, I don't even need to ask questions. I don't need to be forgiven anything. I don't really have to understand history and all of that. I just can entertain myself. Of course, as we know, uh, most people in the world don't have that luxury. Some of us do. But John reveals that regardless of any of that, all people will eventually reach a place of reckoning. And now we're going to start moving towards our chapter 7. But before we do, I want to set the context in chapter 6. All people will reach a place of reckoning. Chapter 6, verse 15. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Another question. Who can stand? Chapter 7 is the answer to that question. Chapter 7 uh, will introduce a theme for us that I want to focus on, which is the theme of promise. Just as last week, Steve so eloquently drew our attention to, uh, the, to the Lamb. This week, I want to spend some time on this theme of promise. Chapter 7 is a response to the question of who can stand, which is an expression of God's enduring faithfulness to the promise that he made to Abraham, a covenant promise. And I want to spend some time working on that because this is the context. This is actually how we understand what's going on in history. First, we see that after the earth-shaking calamity described at the opening of the sixth seal in chapter 6, where the stars fall and the sky vanishes and the mountains are removed, now in chapter 7 we have respite, a holding back of the forces, the wind and the angels. This God can do because God is sovereign. God causes the mountains to fall and the skies to fall, but he also holds back the forces of judgment. God creates a space for the ministry to his people and his servants where they are sealed, okay, or marked as God's own. Now, this is very important to note that in the midst of turmoil, and there's a lot of turmoil, God is always reminding us who we are. This is part of the power of that metaphor of being sealed in the forehead, He's always reminding us that we belong to him. I think branding. Maybe that's a, you know, from the American West, an easier metaphor than sealing. We're branded. <laughs> we belong. A similar tone is struck to that which is sounded in our quote from the first chapter, where John's first words are about blessing and peace, a reminder that these words come to us from the one who loves us. Remember, he's saying, remember who you are as you read. The seal is applied to our bodies, our foreheads. It reminds us of circumcision, of marking in flesh our identity as a covenant people, which was to have significance for the way that uh, Christians understand baptism. Circumcision, that is, is a, a kind of a, a metaphor for understanding baptism, where our participation in the covenant and the covenant promise entails a real change to our nature. In other words, the covenant promise isn't just a matter of intellectual understanding. Something happens to us. Something happens in us. We are now, okay, now here I'm just going to cascade some wonderful biblical text for you about what this means. We're new creations in Christ Jesus. We're washed in regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. We're given new hearts and new spirits. We're born again. We're adopted into God's family. We're circumcised in our hearts. That's not just, I believe something. That's, I'm a different person. I have a different nature, a different body, a different family. 
This is what God promised, to use our word, for his people as a remedy for the collapse of the relationship of God due to sin. All right, so that collapse of the relationship needs a remedy. And God's remedy is covenant bond. A covenant is a bond between two people where a promise is embedded in the covenant. God establishes as a covenant with Abraham and within that covenant is embedded a promise that if the covenant is kept, God will be their God and Israel would be his people. And through that bond, all people would experience blessing. So if we go all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God takes Abraham, a desert nomad, and he calls him out, and this is what he says. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's very hard to capture the magnitude of this word, blessing. Um, it's a very, very powerful word in God's vocabulary. Blessing is the bringing to fruition of all good things. It, it's, it's, a, it's a strong word. And God says to Abraham, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And then he goes on, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So you can see that God is establishing kind of a relationship with a particular person that through whom he will disclose his nature and his character. And as people watch God act with Israel, they'll learn what kind of God he is. And through the Jewish people, all the earth will be blessed. That's the covenant. And that begins to sound this note that just reverberates through time, through the entire course of the Old Testament and all the way into the new world, as we will see. This is what's happening. And our stories, our little stories, are being sewn into the fabric of that story. We are the all peoples who are being blessed through God's covenant relationship with Abraham. And so you'll hear this note sound all the way through the prophets. And here I can only just do a few uh, because of time. This is the way that Isaiah says it in chapter 27, verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root and Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots. That's a metaphor for blessing. And he will fill the whole world with fruit. That's us out here in Annapolis. And this covenant faithfulness will triumph even in the face of mounting pressure from Israel's infidelity, which is a sad part of the story. But here's how Jeremiah says it in chapter 31, verse 31. And I'm going to quote at length here because this is so fundamental. Jeremiah 31, 31. For those of you that like to memorize things, it's an easy one because it's the same number. All right. Jeremiah 31, 31. You'll recognize these words. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the very new covenant that Jesus references. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many and for, for the forgiveness of sins, poured out for many. Do you, do you hear these familiar notes sounding? The nation of Israel and the world. The nation of Israel on behalf of the world. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. But this creates a great crisis in the unfolding plan of God. Why does Israel reject her Messiah? This is an aching question that evokes deep passion among God's people, especially Jesus, who when he approaches Jerusalem just before his sacrificial death on the cross, says this, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Has God's promise failed? This is the reason why Paul wrote the letter to the church in Rome. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's how deep his anguish is over the fact that Jews have not embraced faith in Jesus in the way that they could have. And his answer is in Romans 11, chapter verse 25. And here he's speaking to Gentiles lest you be wise in your own sight, Gentiles, he's saying. I want you to understand this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all will be saved for God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. Do you hear the same thing? That God will have mercy on Israel and on all. This is the covenant promise that goes all the way back to Abraham. And that is what we are seeing in Revelation chapter 7. A sealing of the 12 tribes of Israel and the fruit gathered from the nations. As Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He will justify the circumcised through faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The triumph of the promise of God to Abraham thousands of years later, a vision 
of what's to come. And it's the triumph of the promise, the consummation of a covenant, salvation to Jew and Gentile, just like God said. And that is why it is so natural to hear songs of praise by those who are so sealed. The praise of the saved ones overcomes the agony of the cries that we heard from the prophets, from Jesus himself, from Paul. Now we hear salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, authoritative, triumphant, successful. The entire heavenly hosts, think of it, angels in the throne room, the elders, whoever they are, and the four living creatures all fall on their faces in worship at the declaration of the saved ones. For this work of God was impossible for any heavenly being to have imagined, that God would take on flesh and dwell among us and suffer and die as one of us for our salvation. The heavenly beings, they confirm the worship of the saved ones. They say amen by naming, the, by naming seven attributes of God, a perfect number, a perfect reflection of the inner dynamic of God's nature and its outward expression in the people and the world that he made. If you read these, you'll see that there's wisdom. God has wisdom in solving the dilemma of creation which consummates in blessing and glory and thanksgiving and honor and unending power and might to restore and renew and rule eternally. The worship of the saints united with the affirmation of the heavenly hosts in praise to God and the Lamb. This is our story. This is the context in which we bring our existential questions this is the framework. Our lives are built on this foundation and the architecture is there to connect our daily lives and our little struggles with our eternal destiny. This is how we find meaning and purpose. God is inherently trustworthy. Not even the most impenetrable dilemma, that of human sin, prevents God from fulfilling his purpose justly and righteously, mercifully, freely, and completely. I think it's right then that our passage closes with the promises to the martyrs, perhaps both Jews and Gentiles, who come out of the tribulation, clothed in robes made pure through the atonement of Jesus, surely it was confidence in the trustworthiness of God's promise that enabled those early saints, no less than saints today, to confess their faith on pain of death. What would make a person able to sacrifice their life to confess faith in the Lord unless they were grounded or, how can I say, unless they were built upon the foundation of Christ and within the architecture of that beautiful home. Some of you may be familiar with a, a well-known letter that was written by a Chinese pastor, Wang Yi, back in 2019, a pastor who was bold in China for his proclamation of faith and his kind of civil disobedience for ceasing, for not ceasing to uh, 
uh, terminate his congregational meetings. And he wrote a, a letter, which you can find online, and I, I think there's something very powerful about what he says here within the themes that we're working with. He says, all actions of the church are efforts to prove to the world the true existence of another world, the disobedience of faith, and the patience of the body are the ways we witness another eternal world and another glorious king. Restored. You are reborn. You are commissioned. You are invited to participate in the process of God's inbreaking kingdom. That's the truth of the world in which we live. I'd mentioned in my little sermon blurb in email that one of my favorite poets is Wendell Berry, and he uses a metaphor of a couple dancing to describe the twists and turns of life. And he asks this, he asks, what is fidelity? To what does it hold? The point of departure or the turning road that is departure and absence and the way home? What we are and what we were once are far estranged. I find that quite poignant, but I'd like to add a little more to it. It's not only what we were once and what we are that's estranged, but even more, I'd like to add the words from John, from 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Or another way that we can say it is we live as though that world is the real world. I'd like us to maybe try to put some of this into fruition for us this week. Maybe I'd like to suggest that we take five minutes this week engaging with God around this. Imagine the throne room that John describes here. And imagine being there. Just worship Jesus with the same words that John quotes here in verse 10 and listen to the responses of the heavenly hosts saying amen to your proclamation of faith. Maybe you can introduce into your own praise, your own testimony. Here's another way to spend five minutes. Read and pray chapter one, verses five and six. That introduction where he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Can you say that about yourself? Is that part of your identity, that you're saved and that now you're part of a kingdom of priests ready to rule and reign with God in eternity? It's good to embrace that as part of truth about ourselves. Take a few minutes this week and intercede. This is a missional activity. Pray for the salvation of the Jewish people and for persecuted Christians. Interestingly, I had the privilege in an organization I once worked in of working with a very well-known Norwegian New Testament scholar named Reiter Valvik, um, a man I highly respect and was highly respected by many people. And he told me once, he said, I think it's appropriate for Christians to pray two things, to pray for the salvation of the Jews and for the persecuted church. 
that was a remarkable statement for me from an academic theologian and New Testament scholar, um, somebody who had that kind of resonance with the Bible message and that kind of passion. And I think he's right. Consider making a donation to the church's ministry among Jewish people. That's CMJ. That is the Anglican Church Mission to Israel um, uh, that I served in and um, is part of our uh, network. CMJ reaches out to Jewish people or Jews for Jesus. Or how about uh, Voice of the Martyrs uh, that supports persecuted Christians or even our own Anglican Church uh, Global Mission Initiative. As you know, we will pray or we have been praying and I assume we'll pray today for uh, persecuted Christians uh, around the globe, many in our Anglican Church in Pakistan and uh, especially in Nigeria. I think of Ben Kwashe in the Diocese of Jos. Spend some time praying and acting on behalf of that. It will situate you in the biblical narrative. Praying for the Jewish people is a way of planting your feet in the history of God and in the covenant with Abraham. And one last suggestion, just use your imagination. I think our imaginations are underutilized. I wonder sometimes if that's where the image of God is most fully expressed in us is that we have imagination. Imagine how the mundane things we do every day in our work, our child rearing, our friendships, our families, our marriages, imagine how those things connect to the plan of God to bring all things to blessing or completion in him. I know the impact that little words make on my life by people I trust. I know the impact my mom has had on me in telling me who I am. I'm thinking of her this Mother's Day. She's succumbing to Alzheimer's and wouldn't be able to recognize me. But I know that in her heart, I'm there. And in my heart, her words are there, even in ways I can hardly grasp. How much more... So are you able to have that kind of impact in people just by being who you are in Christ? This question I ask myself every day in my work. I do not find my work amenable to, to my spirit. Let me put it that way. Um, I have to work hard to remind myself that I am a kingdom person in the job that I'm doing. And yet it's true. How are the moments that you're spending with other people expressions of your trust, of your knowledge that the world is the way that God says it will be? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And I think we'll see many other things through that that will bless us as part of our inheritance as covenant children of God. Amen.